One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, <clears throat> if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful for the kind and loving and gentle way that you interact with us. And we're thankful for the story, for the Bible, and the ways we can learn more about you. And so God, I pray that you um, bless us as we journey into this story. In your name, amen. Beautiful weather we've been having today, isn't it? What a lovely spring day in Colorado. For those of you who might be watching online, what I am referring to is the wonderful snow that we had this morning. And now it has turned into overcast, cloudy, beautiful, rainy day here in Colorado, which I love just as much as our bone dry ground here probably is loving and all the flowers are loving. So growing up um, in western Washington, snow wasn't really a huge deal to us. Um, it would snow maybe a couple inches, and then in a day or two, it would all just melt away or turn to slush. It's not like the snow in Colorado where it's super dry and fine, right? And when it gets windy, it just kind of smacks the snow into your face. Um, I actually didn't know what a snowdrift was until I moved to the Midwest. I thought this was just a weird term or something like that. 
I'd never really seen more than six inches of snow unless I was in the mountains, right? Unless I was intentional about going to see the snow. So it was all new here. But the one thing we did struggle with in Washington was ice. If the snow melted at night, it would freeze over. And after a few days of this, roads would just become blocks of ice. It was horrible. And I remember one winter where it actually got pretty bad. Um, and this was the year that I learned what freezing rain was. Our house was filled with people. We had some family friends from California visiting, and they really didn't know anything about winter or snow. Um, overnight, all the weather took a turn and their flights were canceled. And so they were all stuck. They loved it. They were calling in um, to work like, sorry, I can't make it. I'm stuck in the snow. Um, and so the weather took a turn and we were all cooped up inside. And I remember, this will tell you how far back this was, a few days before the weather got bad, my mom let us kids rent a movie from Blockbuster. <laughs> And it was my turn to choose, um, and so I chose Freaky Friday. <laughs> it was great, um, but it was not the best choice because we ended up watching it probably at least 10 times when we were stuck inside. And it was the real struggle because we had satellite TV, so direct TV wasn't working because of the snowstorm, so we were doomed to watching Freaky Friday the entire time we were snowed in. Once the movie got boring, which was only maybe three times in, um, we decided to go to the great outdoors to build a snow fort. And it was the best fort I think I've ever built. It had three snow walls up against the side of the garage, and we got like a tin roof to put on it, made a little fire inside. It was the coolest thing ever. But that night, we got freezing rain. And if you don't know what freezing rain is, it means that everything is just so cold that when it rains, as soon as it touches any object, it turns to ice. So our fort days were over because our fort was just covered in ice. And if you didn't want to turn into a human ice sculpture, you didn't want to go outside either. Um, on the news that night, it was pretty crazy. Multiple counties um, around us were saying not to drive on the roads. And they were saying that con conditions were so bad, if you were to get into an accident or get stuck, it would be super difficult for any emer emergency personnel um, or for a tow truck to get out there to actually rescue you because it'd be hard for them um, on the roads as well. So basically, everyone was stranded wherever they were. My mom decided to make the best out of a bad situation, and she decided we were going to have brunch that day. Because if we're all snowed in, we might as well have a really good meal. And she actually reminded me, I was telling her this story on the phone, and she said, oh, and we were even, we had no power. We were running on generators, so we turned it on really quick to make all the food, and then we turned it off again. And so she made all the food, and I remember she got up early, she broke out the really nice fancy plates. She was trying to make this really special. And so right as the food was moving from the kitchen to the dining room table, we heard a car drive up our driveway. And it was so strange. And it was one of our family friends who lived about 15 minutes away. And they had driven and they had braved the sheer icy roads to make it to our house for some reason. And they were very happy to find that there was food. Our short story with Jesus also has to do with an unexpected guest who braves fierce conditions to make it there. 
In summary, as Jackie read, we find Jesus having dinner um, in the home of a man named Simon, who Luke tells us is a Pharisee. An unnamed sinful woman enters and anoints Jesus' feet. So before we get too far into the story and we're all on the same track together, um, I want to make sure that we're all of the same mind of what Luke's saying. If you're well-versed in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you might be wondering um, and thinking, this story sounds really familiar. It sounds like something I've read in Matthew, Mark, and John. So many commentators have pointed out that Luke's account is distinct to the other accounts. In, this, in his commentary on Luke, Craddock eloquently organizes a comparison and contrast of Luke and the other three accounts. So hold on to your seatbelts for this one. It's quite wild. It says, clearly Luke's is not a parallel story, but hints and similarities are enough to tease the mind. For example, Matthew and Mark agree with Luke that the name of the host was Simon, but they identify him as a leper. John agrees with Luke that the woman anoints Jesus' feet, but not his head. But John also agrees with the others that the anointing was in Bethany, while Luke's story is apparently set in Galilee. Matthew and Mark agree with Luke that the woman is unnamed. John says Mary is the sister of Lazarus, whose home the incident occurred. The three others place the event late in Jesus' ministry and relate it to its death, and Luke's story is one of love and forgiveness. Luke's story must be understood sufficiently distant from the others in location, time, and purpose to be, to be considered entirely on its own. So understanding Luke's story, that it stands on its own, gives us the space to process it of what it really is about, a story of love and forgiveness. So here we find Jesus eating with a Pharisee, talking with him, spending quality time with him. Each week um, for the short story, Zan Long has been writing um, a modern day short story for the kids, and I love how she paints the situation. Zan writes, there once was a party. Not just any party, a cool party. One that only the cool kids went to. But there is this one guy that everyone had been talking about. He had done some pretty awesome stuff, and the kids were trying to figure out if, the cool kids were trying to figure out if maybe he could be one of them. This kind of sets the scene for what we're talking about in the scripture and the party that Simon's hosting. He's trying to feel Jesus out, right? To see if he's actually legit. Simon thinks maybe Jesus could be a prophet. He tells you a little bit about his intentions behind the meal. I'm not sure about you, but it irks me a little bit. What is Jesus doing? Isn't he supposed to be having dinner with sinners and tax collectors? What's he doing with this holier-than-thou belittling Pharisee? Starting off our series, um, Short Stories with Jesus, Danny Sherwood was here. And this quote that has not left my mind since was this. She said, it was much, it's always much easier to care and love the oppressed and to hate the oppressor. This short story with Jesus really caused me to wrestle with Jesus over his own actions. What I love and also struggle with so much about um, our sermons, our preaching plan, our daily walk, our connect groups, our words to remember, is that we have time to process the text, right? You have time to let God work in your heart and your mind, and God has definitely been working with me on this one. It's easy to say Jesus loves everyone, right? 
It's easy to say Jesus died for everyone when you don't let your mind wander to Hitler, to child abusers, to people who enter places of worship and institutions of education with the intention to harm. It isn't until you take a good look at people and a good look at yourself that you realize just how deep the Father's love is for us. Jesus did not favor one side over the other of the social construct of his day. We do find him being shunned by one side more than others later on, but he could be found with lepers and with Pharisees alike. Jesus never shied away from having a conversation or a meal with someone other people had a problem with. Jesus welcomes a conversation and dinner with me just as much as he welcomes it with a person who I might think is a real jerk sometimes. So right now I want you to grab your worship guide, and if you don't have one, you can raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. Um, and I want to bring your attention to the recalibrate section. These are some of the questions that we're going to be processing together. Yep, thank you, Peter. Peter's going to hand some out if you need some. And the first question I want you to ask yourself and that we can ask together is, who are you uncomfortable with Jesus dining with? If you had heard Jesus was having dinner with so-and-so or the person who talked bad about you or cheated you or the person who handled a situation with you in the most untasteful manner, how would you feel? I had my own come to Jesus moment when I realized that when I'm pointing out people's own flaws, when I point out their lack of empathy, when I point out their mean comments on Facebook, their horrible actions, their oppressing habits, I have a log sticking out of my own eye. Hating the oppressor is just as bad as being the oppressor. Standing up for the oppressed doesn't mean you should allow hatred to grow in your heart for those who have caused the harm. I challenge you that when you find yourself struggling to put up with someone, whether it's at work, home, school, or at church, that you remind yourself Jesus would sit down and have dinner with that person any day of the week. You notice how quickly the story moves. Um, if you wanna follow along with me as we work our way through um, the story of Luke chapter seven, in my pew Bible that I had, it's the white one, it was page 957, but Jackie mentions it's 960 something, I think, or a little bit further, but we're in Luke chapter seven, um, and we're looking now at verses 36 and 37. It simply states, one of the Pharisees had asked Jesus to eat with him. Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and sat at the table. Must have not been that lively of a party because the action just kind of swoops over to the next exciting thing. In verse 37 it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she had learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And the story continues on. But before we move too quickly, I want to take a moment for us to pause in the space between the verses. I want you to imagine the courage this woman mustered up to enter into the home of someone who looked down on her and who was disgusted by her. You might be thinking, maybe she's not too afraid of confrontation, right? But you aren't a confrontational person, so maybe this story isn't for you, right? 
So how many of you are not afraid of confrontation no matter how awkward it might be? Oh, wow, okay. Aliyah, really? <laughs> okay, a few more, a few more. I know if Japheth was here, he would have his hand raised high. Um, a good test for this, maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I'm a confrontational person. It's the restaurant test, right? So let's say you order some food. You're gonna order a stir fry, right? And you are just disgusted by mushrooms. So you ask them, please don't put any mushrooms in there, right? And then your dish comes and you're so excited and you're so hungry and you're about to eat and there they are, everywhere. Fungi, just all throughout your dish. Would you send it back or would you pick around it? How many of you would send it back? Good for you guys, because I would pick around it. I would just be like, okay, I'll just move them to the side and just, you know, hope I don't eat one. But you see, this woman isn't being confrontational. She isn't acting out of fear, and she's not trying to make some kind of statement. She hears that Jesus is in a specific place, and she goes. Not because she's welcomed, not because she feels comfortable, not because Jesus even called her there, but because she couldn't help but to pour out her love for Jesus. This leads me to our second recalibrate question in our worship guide. What is getting in the way of you going where Jesus is? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you have to go to a specific place to be with Jesus, right? But sometimes Jesus calls us to be in places and spaces and around people that might make us feel uncomfortable. Sometimes you might even try to keep Jesus out of your normal life, right? You know being a Christian can be uncomfortable at times, but not at work, Jesus, not here, not at dinner time, God, not when, I'm at, not when I'm at the grocery store shopping, not when I'm at the airport. But when Jesus shows up, he turns your normal upside down in the most beautiful way possible. So what's getting in the way of you going where Jesus is? If you're having trouble with this question, um, I want us to look to our lady friend in this story. She didn't let fear get in the way of being with Jesus. Don't you think she was scared? She didn't let uncomfortability get in the way of being with Jesus. Don't you think she was uncomfortable? She didn't let embarrassment get in the way of being with Jesus. Don't you think she felt a little embarrassed and ashamed? She didn't let pride get in the way of being with Jesus. Don't you think she wanted to hang on to her last piece of dignity? She didn't let an invitation get in the way of being with Jesus. Don't you think she felt unwelcome? She didn't let people get in the way of being with Jesus. Don't you think she knew what the Pharisees thought about her? She didn't let time get in the way of being with Jesus. Don't you think she could have waited until Jesus left Simon's house? So what's it for you? It can be something super practical. Maybe it's coming to church or staying for connect groups. Believe me, when I was in college, I could come up with any excuse ever. I don't have enough time or I'm too busy. I was very naive back then. I thought I was very busy in college. <laughs> or I didn't want to run into certain people, right? That's so true. Or maybe it's something more personal in your own journey with Jesus. 
Maybe time, pride, embarrassment, or feeling uncomfortable have held you back from truly opening up and letting Jesus address you. And I want to give you a spoiler alert for the rest of the story. Jesus is going to address you all right, but he wants to address you with forgiveness. So the woman comes in not because there aren't obstacles, but because she wants to be with Jesus. She washes, anoints, and kisses his feet. Jesus later explains these are the customs of hospitality that Simon withheld from him. The customs in that culture um, for guests coming to your home was to give them a kiss, to wash their feet, and to anoint their head with oil. But in this story, it's the sinner who is the one who extends hospitality, not the Pharisee whose home it is. Simon proves to us that it's possible to let Jesus into our lives, into our homes, into our schools, into our churches, into our you fill in the blank, without extending hospitality to him. Now what do I mean when I say hospitality? Last week, I asked some of our Camp Sanitas kids what they thought hospitality was, so I wanna share some of these answers with you. Some of them were, hospitality is when someone needs a house and you let them sleep in yours. Sounds nice. Hospitality is when you give away something you don't need anymore. Hospitality is being in a hospital. It's a good one. Hospitality is that when you don't need anything anymore, you can give it away. Hospitality is donating clothes and toys and being nice to people and caring. Hospitality is putting on the other person's favorite kid's show. I really like that one. And hospitality is making someone feel at home. The general definition of hospitality is the friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, and strangers. Sounds very nice. But I would like to push further to say that authentic hospitality is rooted in the sense of belonging. Um, ever since I've come to Boulder, I've experienced the most overwhelming and incredible hospitality from all of you. From the second I stepped foot in Colorado as um, an intern and stayed with Russ and Doris, to just last week um, I was having dinner with Amy and Gerardo and Kira and Gavin at their home. And there is just such an incredible gift of hospitality in this church that when I was there, I felt like I belonged, right? I felt like I was supposed to be there. I felt like I was supposed to be eating the dinner that they made for me, right? Have you ever felt like when you're at someone's house and you feel a little uncomfortable, like, should I even eat the food that's in front of me? And um, here at this church, there's just this incredible sense of belonging when we're together um, and that we extend that to one another. There's a big difference between being in the same place as someone and belonging in the same place as someone. Could it be possible that sometimes we've invited God into these places of our lives without truly extending hospitality to him, without actually asking him to belong there? Instead of giving Jesus a place of belonging, Simon invited him in just to test him out. He was examining Jesus, testing him, keeping him at arm's length. Jesus calls him out on this and explains that the woman goes above and beyond the hospitality that was withheld by Simon. So I can't help but to ask, who is extending the hospitality that we have withheld as individuals, 
as families, as communities, as a country, as a worldwide church? Could it be possible that we treat people the same way Simon treated Jesus? We invite them in, but we don't really give them a place to belong? I truly believe that our outward hospitality is a telltale sign of our inward, emotional, and spiritual hospitality. And that's almost exactly true with this story. When Simon sees the sinful woman at Jesus' feet, he thinks to himself, I knew it. Jesus isn't even a prophet. If he was a prophet, he would not even let that woman touch him because he would know just how sinful she is. And you have to love the quick wit that Jesus has. Um, and he answers Simon's inner monologue. I would like to think that Jesus cut off his um, inner rant about how wonderful and great he is. Um, and Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. And Jesus begins the story of the two debtors. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other only 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. The other day I was at Vista Ridge yesterday doing chapel and we talked about this story. And I said, okay, this side of the room, you guys owe me a million dollars. And they were like, <gasps> everyone was really, I said, you better start thinking of ways to pay me back. And I walked over to this side and I said, okay, this side, you guys only owe me $10, right? And they're breathing a sigh of relief. Whew, okay, good. And I said, now who's gonna come pay me back, right? Everyone quiet. And I said, okay, now I'm going to just say, you guys are good. No one owes me anything. And this side actually started like cheering and like was almost like up on their feet, really excited. And this side over here was like, no, oh, okay. And it was just such a cool like visual representation of how much um, excitement and joy came from those that would have owed more. And so to make this even maybe a little bit more real, did you know that the average student loan debt that someone has is $30,000? Yeah. That means that if you obtain the average student loan debt and you paid the minimum balance every single month, right, you were faithful about that, um, maybe with a little bit of interest, you would be paying your debt off for over eight years. That's a fun fact, right? Just for you know, all of you thinking about going to college. Um, so take that person and then take someone who maybe has a few hundred dollars on their credit card bill that they just haven't paid off yet this month, right? So if you take both of those, and for some wonderful, magical reason, both debts are forgiven. Which one would be the most appreciative? Obviously, the person with the bigger debt, right? You see, in our story, though, Jesus gives us a qualifier that neither of them are able to pay back the money. Neither of them can. They aren't able to defer the loan. They aren't able to make payments. They can't lower their interest or consolidate. They just flat out can't pay it back. They're stuck with this. Jesus uses this story to have Simon say aloud that just because he may have kept more rules or more specific rules than this woman, he himself was also a debtor, also a sinner. 
It must have been a little frustrating for Simon, and the true meaning began to sink in in his mind. He was on the same page as this woman. Oh, frustrating, but he only had a little bit of debt, and she has so much. How frustrating would that be? She's really a sinner. I'm only a little bit of a sinner, God. Jesus cuts through this illustration and into the real live tension that fills the room. He turns to um, the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Again, he's calling out this lack of hospitality that Simon has. He has him in his home, but he hasn't made him a place to belong. And now, to borrow from the Passion Translation, um, from our words to remember for this week that Chris read for us during Kids Life, Jesus says, she has been forgiven all her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus then does something that probably blew the minds of everyone at dinner, all these Pharisees, because remember, they're thinking he could maybe be a prophet, right? Maybe. Jesus then tells this woman, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Who is this guy who can forgive sins, right? So they're probably just jaws on the ground. And I love the way Craddock crafts the comparison and contrast of Jesus and Simon. He says it this way, here are two religious leaders, suddenly in the presence of a sinful woman. One has an understanding of righteousness which causes him to distance himself from her. The other understands righteousness to mean moving towards her with forgiveness and a blessing of peace. Jesus, who is righteousness, forgiveness, and peace, can give freely to this woman. Simon understands righteousness as a list and not a person. He under his understanding tells him to keep score, his debt, the woman's debt, right? And he wants to point out the flaws in others, see her as a sinner and him as, you know, a great religious leader. He tells himself to not be associated with those who haven't kept as many rules as him, or at least as many obvious rules as him. But Jesus' understanding of righteousness causes him to move towards her. This brings us to our third recalibrate question. What does your understanding of righteousness tell you to do? To answer that question, you might have to know what your understanding of righteousness is. If your understanding of it is that it has to be something that's earned or something that can be kept score on, you'll end up right at the first recalibrate question, having trouble with Jesus sitting down with someone that you dislike, right? But if you see righteousness as a person, you see righteousness as Jesus, you will move towards people and not away from people. Earlier this week, Diane and Bexley stopped by the church to water some flowers and go down to the refrigerator and make sure there were no unlabeled expired foods down there. So <laughs> you'll be in trouble if you don't. So Diane and Bexley came in 
And we were talking about what it really means to live love. We say it every week here at church at the end of our service. We say it even during our sermons. We say it um, in passing that we want to be people who live love. When we say it here, it sounds clean, it sounds crisp, it sounds really compassionate. Like we sound like a really cool church, like live love, that sounds so great. But what does that really look like in the trenches of your week? When stress hits, deadlines need to be met, kids need to be fed, meetings need to be had, people are grumpy, traffic is chaotic, accidents happen, tough conversations are had. When loved ones are lost, People are rude, neglectful, harmful, hateful, disrespectful, uncaring, and overall unconcerned. When natural and man-made disasters take place, or a loved one, or you are dealing with health issues, and to top it off, you drop your coffee while you're trying to unlock the front door. It's a true story. How do you live love then? How do you show a perfect love in imperfect situations? And to answer that, I have to say, to live love, you have to live forgiveness. Now, what does it mean to live forgiveness? It means you have to live it for yourself first. You have to accept the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. Simon was in the mindset that he could keep most of the rules and he needed little forgiveness, like one of the debtors in our story. This woman, she knew she needed a lot of forgiveness, and she accepted it. She embraced it. She lived it. Forgiveness changed her DNA, and love flowed out of her because of it. Our short story with Jesus today is centered around this theme, that love proves forgiveness. When we're forgiven little, we love little. When we love little, we forgive others little. So do you see this trend here? So what would be a good sermon without some Play-Doh, right? I want to encourage you to think of our hearts as Play-Doh. When forgiveness encounters us, right, we're kind of like this soft Play-Doh. Forgiveness keeps us moving, keeps us being soft and caring and compassionate to others, right? But when we don't have forgiveness in our lives, it's kind of like this Play-Doh that I left out. Have any of you kids left out your Play-Doh? Oh, does it get so gross and crumbly and crunchy? I'm not even gonna crunch it here right now because that would just be nasty. It makes hard, gross, crumbly Play-Doh that doesn't move. It breaks, it breaks into small pieces. So if love proves forgiveness, I have to ask you guys the question today. How are you proving your forgiveness? How are you seeking living out the forgiveness that has been given to us through Jesus? How are you seeking being more forgiving to others in your life? Bethany Allen, a pastor in Portland, Oregon, does an incredible job at defining forgiveness by saying what forgiveness is not. She said, forgiveness does not mean to excuse or condone a behavior. It doesn't mean acting like you haven't been hurt by someone or something. Forgiveness is not about how we feel, but it's about being in step with the Spirit and doing what He's inviting us into. Forgiveness does not mean that something isn't a sin. 
Forgiveness does not mean allowing someone who is toxic or painful back into your life. She goes on to quote one of her theology professors who defines forgiveness as the personal act to release the one who has sinned against you from your personal right to collect on the moral debt to pay back him or her for his or her offense. I'm gonna say it one more time. Forgiveness is the personal act to release the one who has sinned against you from your personal right to collect on the moral debt to pay him or her back for his or her offense. When you realize the forgiveness you have been given, you realize how much you've been forgiven, you love much, much more. And when you love much, much more, you are able to extend that forgiveness to others in your life, setting aside your own judgment of if they actually deserve that forgiveness or not. So who or what are you holding that moral debt against today? I praise Jesus that he doesn't hold that moral debt against us because we have so much. So today, in your hearts, in your minds, in your souls, let forgiveness that has been given to you through Jesus be the reason why you show such extravagant love to both God and those whom you interact with. Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Go in peace. Jesus says to us today, your sins have been forgiven. Go in peace. So today, may Jesus bless you with forgiveness and with peace, and may Jesus bless you with a soft Plato heart.